all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. You can follow us on InstaX, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch, Blue Sky, and Threads at All Bad Things Pod. You can email us at allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group, our subreddit, and our Discord. Do all of those things. Almost made it through doing that without complaining about it, but here I am <laughs> complaining about it. Basically, you can find us on all your favorite social meds and anywhere on the intranets. Intranets. <laughs> at All Bad Things Pod. Yes, basically. That's because that all bad things, that's pretty vague. And it's also a it's Motley also Crue album. It's also a Motley song. song. Album. No, song. No? no it's it's song. an album? It's a song. I thought it was an album, no. too. Oh, okay. Song. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been too, like, obvious if mm. we had taken that one. People, Motley Crue would have sent us a cease and desist letter by now. I don't think no, they would have. for no. them to care about. <laughs> I very much doubt they would have been like who like never heard of them doesn't matter literally does not matter literally does not matter we're fighting distribution rights in uh the in in the in Russia right now right (laughs) it is very good that we're recording all of these episodes ahead Yes. And also very difficult to come up with new things to say when we just recorded yesterday. Absolutely. So we're just like less and less preamble. You can tell. Which some people are probably, yes. Some people are probably like, good. Mm-hmm. Record every day. Yes. <laughs> um, I was listening to an episode of um, Maintenance Phase where Michael Hobbs was talking about how you know, when you're listening to a podcast, you don't want to hear people go off on side tangents and talk about personal things, so you edit that out to create the pacing. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, well, Michael, you see, we're not journalists. Or professional. So, in any way. <laughs> Either of those things. So I'm on my, I guess this may be considered like the fourth different uh, playthrough on Fallout 4 that I've done. But I've, I've done several missions that I've never done before. Oh, wow. For a game that I've owned for like eight years. It's pretty exciting. Is that your your contribution it to the is. okay? Yes. Gotcha to the banter. Yes, I see. Well, that's awesome. Yes, it, is. it was. Has a high uh, play th- replayability. Oh, big time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and anybody who has Starfield, let me know how it is. Yeah, because you're a little on the fence about it, huh? Not really. No, you're gonna get I mean, it. It's just yeah, I'll get it. It's just like yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. We'll Not as excited there. as I was for it, but who knows? Yeah, maybe it's just one of those things you gotta. You got to try yourself. (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. It's one of those things. (laughs) All right. We are on part two. Part two. Of the deaths of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. Which. Submitted by Nicole. Yes. Thank you again. Excellent script by Nicole. Yes. Very excellent setup into what we are now, but. How we left off. Well, let's get yeah, into Yeah, Nicole how is we going to yeah. um, summarize a little okay. bit. Okay. Um, and this is, we'll kind of use this map because Nicole mentioned it at the end of the previous episode um, as kind of a timeline. That's right. Of where they were so we can see 
where they departed. This is, well, let me, we'll, we'll get into this. So, okay. So this is part two. To summarize part one, in 1928, Glenn and Bessie Hyde, newlyweds of six months, were nearing the end of their attempt to run the Colorado River in a sweep scow. I really hope it's pronounced scow, otherwise I've been saying it wrong this whole time. Anyway, if successful, Bessie would become the first woman to take the Colorado through the Grand Canyon, a feat which would not ultimately be accomplished for another 10 years. Really? When we left the story last, Glenn and Bessie were near 217 Mile Rapid and were seen for the last time by another person. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember that's, that. Yep. Again, I ask that those who know this story from Unsolved Mysteries and believe certain things about Glenn Hyde to trust me on this as we go. I I fully trust Nicole. <laughs> I no, am a no reason not to. <laughs> I am a blue-haired 21st century feminist lesbian atheist with nearly a dozen tattoos. Well, right there I trust you. Straight exactly. off the bat. Yes. I give all those and that was not sarcastic. I meant that truly. I give all those descriptors to show that nothing about me says that I would be here defending the character of a straight cis white man born in the 1800s unless I felt he was worthy of defense. There you go. <laughs> sure. That's fair. Yes. Bessie had predicted that they'd reach Needles by December 6th, and R.C. Hyde did not start worrying for them on that date, only because I have, uh, quote, I have been afraid all of the time, end quote. Uh, yeah. yeah. This whole thing is terrifying. Yeah. yeah. He gave them three extra days, then quickly gathered others, including the Kolbs, those the photographers, uh, to assist in a search. The scow, rain in the face was located December 19th, my birthday, uh, many years before I was born, but still, still, at mile 237. An important day in history. There you go. December 19th. Yes. Also, Robert Urich and Alyssa Milano, born on December oh, 19th. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Secured in place by its, ro- its rope caught underwater. Oh. It showed no damage and nothing was missing except what R.C. was most desperate to find. The searchers studied Bessie's journal, noting that the mile 231 rapid was her last entry on the morning of November 30th. They were able to determine this by matching Bessie's notes, indicating what each rapid looked like with slashes, ripples, dashes, and squiggles. Those all sound like the same thing, but okay. (laughs) To the rapids on the river, and mile 231 matches her last entry. There was also a carving in a rock a few miles upriver, from where the scout was found, that just said hide, H-Y-D-E. Sure. Mm-hmm. It would be very creepy if it said H-I-D-E. It would. That's, yes. that's like much creepier. Uh, and the date of November 30th, 1928. Bessie's last entry indicates mile 231 rapid and the mile 232 rapid, not well known at the time but infamous today, is often called the killer fangs for the rock that protrudes especially at low water levels Probably, which were occurring in 1928 yeah something looking like this yeah mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. so guess. okay here we've got some pictures so the last photo of glenn and bessie together taken the last moments they were seen november 18th and again we saw the other photos of them which yeah. looked fairly contemporary right there was yeah the, especially <laughs> the one when they're smiling yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and we talked about that uh, Glenn is captaining the scow, Bessie on rear sweep. Right, screen sh- screenshots. Screen. <laughs> screenshots. Screenshots. Screenshots from a Vimeo upload showing what the fangs look like. 
those protrusions there mm-hmm. and how you can't see exactly how dangerous they are until you're very close. Sure. So yeah, those are pretty sharp outcroppings. Well, you don't there. want to hit them. Let's, and let's, and uh, there's the, the no bueno zone. <laughs> yes, to be sure. You don't want to run into those. Yeah. It's almost like it's creating like a barrier between that and like your next little level of water you got to pass through. Right, like, like it's right. a game. Yeah, yeah. Unfo- except unfortunately <laughs> except you don't real. get like 12 lives you to don't. go play through. You yeah. get one shot. Like Eminem said. <laughs> you only get one shot. Yeah. Do not blow your chance. Uh, do not miss your chance to blow this opportunity. <laughs> comes once do not in blow a your chance to miss. <laughs> do not blow your chance to miss. Emery, Col- Emery Kolb, the photographer and one of the searchers, cut the scow free of the rope that was anchoring it in place. At the time, he thought that due to the non-chaotic nature of the presentation of the vessel, that Glenn and Bessie may have left it there on purpose and tried to hike out. Although this should have been considered unlikely due to the existence of all of their supplies. Yeah, I guess that would be the thing. A search was done downriver of the scow as well as on land and nothing was found. It is generally accepted by historians... That Glenn and Bessie... (laughs) I'm continuing. That Glenn and Bessie were launched from the scow at mile 232 and drowned. Yeah. As both had been flung into the water multiple times earlier in the trip and were pulled back by each other, but they had never fallen out at the same time. Yeah. Right. And in other trips, we know this to to be true already. Right. It's Uh something that... They, for some reason, they think it's like part of a normal journey. Well, right. sometimes he falls, sometimes I fall. Right. We pull each other back <laughs> they in. Just pull like, pull each like, other no, back. No, you're in. not supposed to do the falling part like, at all. Here's so here's a timeline like on the river map. So like in the United States, this is the section that's shown. Sure. Utah, Arizona. Which is um, like a very brand new part of the United States. Like, very officially yeah, the New West. Yeah. Uh, so here's where they started, and they made it all the way down, probably about here, and then, oh, there's mile 232 rapid, and then they were found, or the, the boat was found right yeah. there. Hmm. Hmm. So, while rain in the face, that's the, the name of the boat, remember, uh, didn't appear to be damaged, all that means is that the hides weren't separated from their vessel due to its sinking sure. or breaking apart, yeah. The way the scow was constructed and the type of wood used, it would have been flexible from being in the water and able to bounce off the fangs without much damage while still losing its occupants. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say, well, they they could still go launching. Right. Most likely did it at that point. Right. Because all that momentum, you know. You're on a stationary object slamming into uh, rocks. Another state, a strong stationary object. Right, you're going to go flying. Yeah. You, you just are. But the, the boat, like Nicole said, could just be could strong enough it. plus, yeah. yeah, absorbing it, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An alternate theory is that they'd been making camp and the scow came loose and began to float away. And Bessie went after it and got pulled into deep water and then Glenn tried, died trying to rescue her. Um, in this theory, Bessie was tangled up in weeds and rocks beneath the scow when it was found, and the rope that Kolb cut free was, at the other end, wrapped around her arm. But the main thing is that it was intact. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they that just goes to show you. It was a shipwreck. Exactly. Yeah. And it uh-huh. goes to show you that at some point, however it happened, the, the passengers got separated from the from vessel. From the vessel, exactly. It wasn't uh-huh. because the vessel went down or had a hole in it or some shit like that. It was like, no, it was still fine. Right. For all intents and purposes. 
but mm-hmm. yeah, the people are missing. So that means they fell off or got <laughs> launched off. <laughs> or like um, this other theory that um, Bess- the boat came loose, Bessie went to grab it, and they drowned in that That's recovery I mean, process. Yes. Yeah. All all the theories, like they got mm-hmm. separated from the vessel somehow. Right. So. Ugh. I think it's more likely that they drowned near mile 232, but either theory is possible and far more likely than the bullshit I'm about to get into. <laughs> After the bullshit, this is the murder part. Yeah. After the bullshit, I will circle back to the story, to Brad Dimmick's own experiences, and to address some rumors, most of which appear to be complete horseshit. <laughs> rumors, as they do, thrive with the passage of time. Sure, yeah. And not the Fleetwood Mac album. <laughs> Although that album is still thriving. It is. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Interviewed some 20 years on. Albert Sutro. Oh my goodness. Albert Sutro? Uh, yes, sorry. I'm not, again, not a commentary on the script. Albert Sutro. Remember we talked about him last time? Okay, that's what I was trying yeah. to, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Emery Kolb and others claimed that Bessie had wanted to quit from very early on and that Glenn was forcing her down the river due to an obsession with setting a record. It's reported that Kolb offered them life jackets when they stopped by his studio, but that Glenn refused and wouldn't let Pessy have one either. Right. However, in Kolb's retellings, including an auto audio recording I listened to, he uses they instead of Glenn or he when discussing this, saying they said no, they were strong swimmers, they didn't need them. Which seems to imply that the Hydes were united in their thoughts that they'd already made it through the worst rapids and didn't need life jackets. Also, it seems like from everything that's come before this, that Bessie was a really independent, adventurous person. Yeah. So what what's this part, narrative sure. of him dragging her along? Because yeah. she seemed pretty up for it. She seemed pretty capable on her own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, hmm. Well, I mean, you got to come up with some sort of a narrative. Yeah. Albert Sutro points out the serious expressions on the Hyde's faces in the photos he took on the day he spent riding the river with them, although to me, his portrait of them just looks like another formal photo, and they would not have wanted to be smiling in photos taken in the scow so they'd appear more professional, since if they wound up successful, the photos would have been widely published. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. Um... Yep, and there's a picture of them looking kind of resolute. Yeah. And it's true, yeah. you would you would want to look kind of badass, right? If you're like, ooh, if we do this, our picture's going to be in the paper. Come on, let's look, strike right. a pose, look look cool. Yeah. You're not going to be all, <laughs> you know, about it. You're going to be like Madonna, like strike a pose or something too. Vogue, strike a pose. Yes. Your yes. favorite artist. <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, this is the, the scow as it was found. It just yeah, looks like so it's just it's, sitting there. Yeah. yeah. And again, is it, it? It looks more of like a, you know, it's something that you take long range to do like all sorts of different, you know, projects with. It's not something that's, you know, built for like one or two journeys. You know oh no, I mean? no, it's, no, no! It's, it's, it's meant built. Well, it was last. meant to go miles and miles down this yeah, river. Yeah. So. And again, yeah. Well, of course, yeah. It's still intact. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some report hearing that after spending a night at Hermit Rapid. Bessie had refused to go on any farther, and after a terrible argument, Glenn had picked her up, carried her down the trail while she protested, and thrown her into the scow before pushing off. 
Some even suggested that Glenn had murdered Bessie in a fit of rage and disappeared, walking out of the canyon. (laughs) And then Nicole just wrote, no. (laughs) (laughs) And others said that Bessie had murdered Glenn in self-defense. No. (laughs) Here I'll address Bessie's quote when interviewed by the Denver Post in mid-November, which I mentioned in part one. People will often cite this as proof that Bessie was on the river against her will. I will share the quote, provide the context, and then give my interpretation. So, quote, We carried no life rings. I admit I was scared to death. I can't remember clearly all that happened. All I know is I managed to hang on to the sweeps by which the boat is guided and managed to keep it as straight as possible until my husband could grasp the sides. Then I helped pull him aboard. End quote. Okay. That seems kind of straightforward. But yeah. Bessie was clearly describing Glenn's fall at Sochtelager, I probably pronounced that two different ways the last time, Rapid, when he was hit with one of the sweep oars and was briefly knocked unconscious. Yeah, I remember that. She was not making a broad statement that she was terrified to be on the river, but sharing that she had feared for her husband's life during a specific scary incident. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Understandable. The quote continues, her telling the reporter, quote, Our main object in taking this trip is to give me a thrill. It's surely been successful so far. I have had the thrills of my life and I've been thoroughly drenched a dozen times, but I'm enjoying every minute. And quote, okay. So she's basically like, hey, we're out here for me. This is fun. That's happening. Yeah. Bessie admits she was scared at certain moments, which which were always moments she thought that Glenn might be in danger. But her journals and interviews do not support that she did not want to be there. The fact that she also wound up helping Glenn back into the scout at Sockdog or by throwing him a rope makes it make sense that she specified that it was life rings she wish- wished they have, not life jackets. Mm. Note, I'm not defending their decision to go without life jackets. Even though, as mentioned in part one, it was uncommon to use them in Idaho, so they probably were genuinely confused as to why the jackets were repeatedly offered. The reason that I keep specifying that Bessie has not wished specifically for life jackets is because that does matter when discussing whether or not Glenn was forcing her to put herself at risk that she did not wish to. Reading books about mysterious disappearances about the canyon, anywhere a blurb of the hides may appear, you'll almost without fail read that Bessie was afraid and that Glenn forced her to go on, without any acknowledgement that this may not be true, when in reality it almost certainly wasn't. Bessie's journals, right to the end, include flowery descriptions of the landscape and of the people they met, and romanticized commentary about things as simple as trees and stars, and the idea of panning for gold. It sounds like there's like a a tendency to little little lady her a little bit and be like, oh, you know, she was just a little scared lady. Well, I mean, also given the time period. Yeah. So. Yeah. Sure. That would still happen today. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, it would. (laughs) One late entry notes that they saw a deer, but makes no mention of any attempt to hunt it. She was just happy that they saw a deer. Given her life history to this point, I find it very unlikely that Bessie could be forced into anything. She may have been wary at some points, as was Glenn, but her own words, interviews, as well as her very candid journals and letters, tell us that she was not being dragged down the river. 
I choose to believe Bessie herself over a bunch of men who didn't believe women belonged on the Colorado in the first place and would be very likely to claim that of the two of them, the big lanky man was brave and the tiny young woman who had no business being out there was terrified. Yeah. Mm. It is certainly possible or even likely that she was apprehensive at times or that some days she felt wary about getting started. I know that I have experienced that in the past. I've never done a rafting trip longer than three days, but if you don't sleep well, if you get rained on, or if you were thrown out of your raft or flipped your kayak the day before, it sometimes takes a minute to talk yourself into starting out again the next morning, even if you did still want to be out there. <laughs> I love that. No, like, I've never done, never done one longer than three yeah, days. No big deal. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If I were in the wilderness, I want one person with me, and that's Nicole. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I've I've never been on a You've never really been in the wilderness. No. I would never <laughs> be in the wilderness. <laughs> I just haven't been in a while. Not not too much as an adult. But, What's uh... the longest you've I mean, so you've gone camping, I know mm-hmm. that. But was that like we're hiking out in the woods with tents on our backs and no. corp no. camping uh-uh. or no. what? That's where you're Driving cars, okay. trucks rather. Okay. Because we all had, you know, everybody had a boat pretty much. So you gotta okay. do all that. No, it's, I guess what you could, you could kind of consider glamping to a degree. But, yeah, not roughing it. But uh, not necessarily. I mean, even back then, but, you know, because you got a lot with electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, we all slept in tents outside that were just on the ground. And What was the most rustic in the wilderness experience you've had? Uh, and don't say Eden Fest. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean that, that might be it though. <laughs> uh, I mean nothing too extreme. Yeah. I mean really, I mean just basic camping kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. I've never even done that. So. <laughs> it's fun. You know, the closest I've come is um when the hurricanes would take out our electricity for a few days. And we'd have I, to. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of counts. That kind of that, that counts like mm-hmm. fully because yeah, you're. Also, randomly, I remember. I'm pretty sure it was around 9/11. I remember having to go to my grandparents' house to shower because our hot water heater was broken. That's the closest I've come to camping is our go. hot water heater being broken. <laughs> that, that, or that's roughing it. That time that our hideous HOA president wouldn't put us up in a hotel because a water pipe burst and we didn't have water overnight. We did not. I stayed at my parents that night. Still don't talk to the woman. Still, (laughs) she's persona non grata, just like weirdo next door. So, Uh, so there's my, there's my camping experience. (laughs) A burst water pipe and a kind of. (laughs) So basically, in other words, what I'm saying is <laughs> you have not been camping. If some wilderness adventurer took me out on this trip, it would be fully reasonable to expect that I had been murdered. Because <laughs> that's the only way I would have gone out to begin with or this threat of murder. Exactly. Like we don't have to go all yeah, we can, we can exactly. start with start with kidnapped. But Bessie kidnapped was very sure. different from me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, all right. So this is um sorry, Nicole. <laughs> She's in the middle of talking about you know like if you if you don't sleep well you're out on the in this like roughing it trip you have to kind of talk yourself back into going back out 
I distinctly remember being woken up at 4 a.m. on one river trip and yelling something to the effect of, go the fuck away. (laughs) Because in that moment, the last thing I wanted to do was get going. But looking back, that was some of the most fun I've ever had in my life. Well, lovely. I'm I'm glad for you. (laughs) I'm I'm very glad for you. (laughs) One problem with the reports of Glenn throwing Bessie into the boat after she refused to go on and that he would beat her to get her to comply with her wishes, other than this being completely different from all that is known about Glen Hyde, is that the area of the river where this man... man dandling? Okay. Or manhandling, maybe? I don't know, sorry. Uh, By Glen, apparently took place, was almost completely void of human presence that time of year. The tourism of the canyon in 1928 was nothing like it is today, And the guest books show that the people who made these reports were nowhere near the area at the same time as the hides, and that no one was actually in the camp until a day after they left it. Yeah. So that's that's weird that, like, out of the blue, someone who has no history of domestic violence, like, people are just trying to pin something on him. Yeah, it is. It's it's fishy. Yeah, and it's kind of shitty, too, because if he was, like, not a bad guy, then don't make a bad guy out of him. Yeah. Um, sources will say, quote, many people saw Glenn treat Bessie this way, but cannot name these supposed many people. Another problem is we know that Glenn and Bessie could not have fought after spending a night at Hermit Rapid because they did not spend a night at Hermit Rapid. They simply stopped for lunch. It's possible or even likely that they had some sort of difference of opinion at this location and that some that some passerby witnessed but it took decades for the story about Glenn throwing Bessie into the boat to emerge, just as it took a great amount of time for people to claim that Bessie never wanted to do this at all. It was like, sounds like revisionist history going on there. I wonder how many retellings that Hermit Rapid story took to get to that point. As Dimmick puts it, speaking of these rumors, quote, it took 20 years for Bessie's feet to turn cold, end quote. It is these rumors of domestic violence that I believe created the lie propagated on Unsolved Mysteries that Bessie had just turned 18 at the time of their adventure, still a naive, inexperienced teenager with a husband 10 years her senior. Senior. (laughs) Senior. (laughs) Dimmick told NPR that these retellings, all of which were 20 or even 30 years after the fact, are contributions to, quote, the morphing of Glenn's image, end quote. He says that, quote, in 1928, Glenn was described as decent and not domineering, but later he became the ignorant brute, the wife beater, and she became the reluctant pawn. There appears to be nothing behind that, end quote. That's true, because, like, it's shitty for him to, like, if he was just a perfectly normal, fine guy, to suddenly be turned into, like, this domestic abuser. Uh, Yeah, it's, yeah. And if Bessie were, like, this out like totally adventurous up for anything woman to be like painted as this like oh no she was forced into doing this like that's shitty for both of them i mean the whole setup is just exactly that a setup yeah and it sounds like it sounds like people trying to come up with a story because it's like the, the simplest solution is usually the correct one or whatever well it's that and just naturally you everybody wants closure 
Yeah. I mean, that's just an, that's a normal thing. So if people you know, have disappeared, right? Yeah, you don't really get like, that. Are they still out there? Did they? Who knows? Why yeah. off the side of the mountain? Like who knows? You know? uh, or drown so we'll, and now they're so we'll just make are, something up where it could yeah. have been like because that's yeah it's it's more entertaining to think of it sure. that way in like a really creepy way it's it's literally like a like the pulp fiction like magazines kind yeah. of drama like it really is that's true that is kind of that uh plus this is like i mean true crime has been around since this easily since this time sure i mean well, plus maybe like during the Great Depression and the war sure. years, well, even before it that, got sensationalized. You know, I think it. I think it literally goes back to like post Civil War. Oh because, sure, because so many people well, were out Jack of work. Well, Jack the Ripper and that, that kind of whole... stuff too. You know, you had Edgar Allan uh, Poe, like and... the Penny Dreadfuls or whatever <laughs> the hell they were called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Edgar Allan Poe wasn't a true crime. I, I fully understand was, that. I just mean not. the the but gothic. He was, a, he was a horror. Yeah, like, the uh, gothic horror sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is noteworthy that the early comments, comments that were made before their story turned tragic, that Glenn was a good man, came from some of the same people who were happy to tell reporters whatever they wanted to hear 30 years later, when it was clear neither Glenn nor Bessie would be showing up to say otherwise. That's true. That's the other thing that distance would do is there's nobody to contradict. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Some cite Bessie's mother's dislike of Glenn as a sign it was clear neither... Oh, sorry. Uh, as a sign that there were red flags about him, even in the summer of 1927. But it is worth noting that her approval of Earl Helmick was well established. And in 1927, Glenn was the man Bessie was leaving Earl for and possibly cheating on Earl with. Yeah, if we um, took everybody's mother-in-law as, like, the authority... Then Emilio Estefan would have been yes. in trouble, yes, yes, <laughs> as we learned a couple weeks ago. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Glenn had no history of violence, viewed and treated his sisters as equals, and had not left a trail of scared and battered ex-girlfriends in his wake. In fact, while his life is very well documented, including many friendships of which we know the men's names, occupations, religions, and even wedding dates, I could not find any mention of Glenn having ever had a romantic interest other than Bessie. Hmm. Other theories include that Earl Helmick had tracked Glenn and Bessie down and murdered them. Okay. <sighs> yeah, that's just... It's, now it's just yeah, getting out there, right? Now it's just getting stupid. Uh-huh. Despite him being known to have anger issues, I'm not even going to dignify that with a rebuttal there. Or that Emery Emery Kolb had murdered Glenn either to protect Bessie from him or so that Emery could have Bessie for himself. Insert eye roll here. (laughs) And after Kolb's death in 1976, a male skeleton was found in his boathouse with a bullet in the skull. Ooh, okay. So something was shifty with that dude. Just a wee bit. (laughs) While forensic testing was done, including superimposing photos of Glenn onto photos of the skull to compare structure, Glenn was conclusively ruled out, and digging into the local historical record revealed that the body was of a suicide victim in 1933, where Emery Kolb had been given custody of the unclaimed remains as he was the county coroner jury representative. And then he just stored it in his closet. Some wild times, man. What are they doing out there in the West? Uh, That's, uh, I don't know about that. There's there's, there's refrigeration at this time. There's like, you know. Ice boxes, I guess. (laughs) 
Although they said it was a skeleton, so well, yeah, they didn't really uh, need it. Yes, I, I don't know. <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries does acknowledge that this man was not Glenn Hyde, but focuses heavily on Bessie being a victim. Their segment meanders through this to ultimately center a story that in 1971, on a commercial rafting trip through the Grand Canyon, the guides were telling stories around a campfire, and one guide was telling the legend of the heights when one woman, who had been fairly quiet during the trip so far, piped up, I'm Bessie Hyde. (laughs) What did you do with Glenn? Someone asked. I killed him, she replied, saying that he had beaten her and she was retali- and she retaliated by stabbing him and throwing his body in the river. You leave the Unsolved Mysteries segment thinking this was likely Bessie. The segment ends with an interview of someone who tracked this lady down and spoke with her afterward and mentions she completely recanted the story. What a weird lady. It's, yeah. A weirdo it's, thing to say. At best, it's strange. Yes. <laughs> His interview ends with him saying, quote, she said she wasn't Bessie Hyde. My gut feeling, though, is that she was, end quote. This dialogue is accompanied by a photo of the Hydes in their scow, the camera slowly zooming in on Bessie, and the segment ends with those words hanging in the air. That's just irresponsible. <laughs> the woman was about the right age and fit Bessie's general height and build, and while I believe Bessie's given name was Bessie, This woman's first name was Elizabeth, of which Bessie is a nickname. Side note, my cat is named Eliza, and Bessie is one of her many nicknames Mm. as well. Yes, seen a couple very cute pictures of Eliza. This Elizabeth's life had been well documented, including the time that she would have been married to Glenn if she was Bessie, and she has been ruled out. She's just a... uh, An eccentric lady. Yes. (laughs) Others from that camping trip, being interviewed in contexts other than Unsolved Mysteries, have always said that even at the time, no one thought the woman was doing anything by just adding to the story to sound spooky around the campfire. Mm -hmm. They pretended to believe her at the time because it made it more fun. Of course. Spooky. (laughs) Yeah. Quick note, as I have spent a lot of time dragging Unsolved Mysteries in this story, I do recommend watching the Hyde segment. It is on YouTube. Oh, we should. Okay. If you take it with a grain of salt. Not only does it over-dramatize and leave crucial information out, I'm pretty sure the reenactment has them going down the river in a rowboat. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, (laughs) it was cheaper. Which is not the same. (laughs) No, it's not. Not even close. No. Despite the 1970... Despite the 1971 Bessie being an imposter, the, quote, battered woman kills abusive husband in a remote wilderness and flees, end quote, narrative continued. There were also fake Glens, but none, none were overly convincing or gave anyone much pause. Another woman thought to be Bessie was the famous Colorado River runner Georgie White Clark, who set many first woman type records in the Grand Canyon and pioneered the idea of using rubber rafts for tourist trips. Hmm. She ran her own company for 45 years. Clark, who never opened up much about her past to her social and professional circles, had items belonging to the Hydes hidden in her room when she died in 1992, including their marriage license. Hmm. Sources differ on if this was the original license or a copy, and even if it was a copy, people wonder how she got it. 
After her death, people learned that Clark's real name was Bessie de Ross. So, so it sounds like Betsy, Betsy Ross. Ross. <laughs> so it was Betsy de Ross. <laughs> Bessie de Ross. She did the uh, remix. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but Clark looked nothing like Bessie Hyde in terms of build or general appearance, and Clark's early life is extremely well documented via paper trail. She would have known about Glenn and Bessie given that her adult life was spent rafting the Grand Canyon. I believe she also knew Emery Kolb, and it's possible she just collected anything she could find from them, much like people today collect memorabilia. As one of the most famous women associated with the Grand Canyon, it makes perfect sense that Clark would be interested in the woman who was on pace to become the first woman to run it before she disappeared. I am sure Unsolved Mysteries would have tried to convince us that Clark was Bessie had she not died after the segment was produced. Clark's biographer Richard Westwood agrees with Dimmick that they were not the same person. Notable evidence against Clark being Bessie, although there's enough evidence to disprove it already, is Clark had a baby in late 1928 or early 1929. Bessie's supposed pregnancy by Earl Helmick would have been in early 1926. Yeah. And Clark gave birth while still in high school in Colorado and while married to her first husband. As Clark married this man because she was pregnant and they later divorced, she and Bessie might have had that in common. However, even if Clark's whereabouts in the summer and fall of 1928 weren't known, which they are, nothing explicitly stated by the Hydes or commented on by the locals at the time mentioned a pregnancy, well, at least not the third trimester pregnancy that Clark would have been going through at the time. Yeah. I feel like uh, that would have been probably visibly noticeable. <laughs> Many historians have speculated that Bessie was pregnant with Glenn's child at the time of her death. In most situations, I would say speculating on this is just an attempt to add more drama and tragedy to the story. But in this case, I think this may be relevant and may explain some of the otherwise unexplainable parts of this mystery. So we're going to get into it and I apologize to those who don't like speculation on this topic, I would not be diving into it unless I thought it might matter. Hmm. People cite Glenn's letter to his family in mid-November, which includes him happily reporting his wife of six months, quote, Bessie is feeling fine and eating everything but the boat, end quote. Remember that? Yeah, Remember exactly. that in the first one. Yep. As possibly a mention of both a current pregnancy symptom, increased ap appetite is often one of the first to appear, as well as the couple anticipating the onset of morning sickness, typically at its worst around the ninth week of pregnancy. Later on in the journey, the couple got a late start out of camp because Bessie was feeling sick. At least one person they encountered on the river mentioned at the time that Bessie had, not been, Bessie had been feeling ill the morning they crossed paths. On November 20th, two days after the hides were last seen, Bessie notes in her diary that they have stayed camped for the entire day, quote, as I didn't feel well, end quote. Mm -hmm. Regardless of if this was due to pregnancy or not, she may have just been feeling sick after spending a month in the elements. Uh, yeah, I think I would too. Pretty good chance of that. Right. The November 20th entry does not support the narrative that Glenn was obsessed with a speed record to the point of throwing his wife into the scout to continue downriver. If he was manhandling her in front of witnesses, which he would have had to, to he, which he would have had to, for there to be reports of it, 
He would have been worse when they were alone. Sure. Yeah. Even if Bessie would have avoided documenting abuse in her journal, there still exists the zero day when they remained in one place because of her feeling sick. A zero day or taking a zero refers to a day when no mileage is achieved. Hmm. If Glenn was the kind of man who was so obsessed with speed that he'd pick her up and throw her into the boat despite her feeling fearful protests in order to keep them moving, they would not have taken a zero a few days later. However, if Bessie was feeling sick from pregnancy or not, someone could still have witnessed Glenn carrying her to the scow at Herman Road so she didn't have to walk, or even witnessed her telling him that she couldn't go down the trail because she physically couldn't unassisted, and then over the course of 20 or 30 years, that story morphed into her refusing to return to the river and him physically forcing her to do so. Yeah. Mm, yeah. People say that they can tell Bessie is pregnant from the photos taken her of her on the river trip, and I don't agree with that. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. She was wearing a large coat in those pictures, and in a few had her hands in her pockets. But if Bessie was pregnant, this would explain a few more things, such as her giving some of her clothes to Emery Kolb's daughter before they departed. Some have used this as evidence that she thought they weren't going to come out of the canyon alive, but perhaps some of her clothing was beginning to no longer fit, or would stop fitting her in the next few weeks. She was, of course, short in stature and just 90 pounds, and a pregnancy would have shown itself quickly, as a developing fetus would have had nowhere to go but outward. Lastly, on this topic, I will circle back to part one and Glenn's cryptic comment in his letter at Lee's Ferry, where he said, quote, I'd quit River here, not on my own account, but from what they tell us, we are over the worst water, end quote. This comment has confused historians ever since, as no report from, sorry, as no reports from Bessie or others who talked to them at the time mentioned her wanting to quit. But her having cold feet seems more likely than Glenn implying he might cave to peer pressure and stop running the river because locals told him to. I don't think I've seen this interpretation before, but I'll offer it up. This comment was made very near to his mention of Bessie's increased appetite, and I think that if she were indeed pregnant, Glenn may have been saying that if they were not past the worst rapids, though they thought they were, uh, he would cut the journey short, not because he thought he needed to stop, hence, quote, not of my own account, end quote, but for the safety of the baby. Mm -hmm. This is all, of course, speculation. But as I do not believe that Bessie was on the journey against her will, that interpretation is the only way I can make Glenn's comment make sense. Of all the rumors about the hides, I think this one, while it cannot be proven, can be substantiated. And if true can explain a lot of the otherwise confusing shit in this story. I hope for their sake that if she was pregnant, that they were excited and spent their last weeks alive looking forward to the future. Hmm. So there's the last photo of Glenn taken by Bessie and the last photo of Bessie taken by Glenn. Okay. Both on November 27th, 1928, three days before Bessie's last journal entry of them passing 231 Mile Rapid. Camera found with the scowl. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of stuff, like, it lasted, like, ex uh, survived Yes. in the scow, which is kind of amazing. In early 1929, the search for Glenn and Bessie appeared in newspapers across the country, no doubt due to the feminine element, as they say, of the 
attempt and because she was, uh, sorry, of the attempt and because it was the couple's honeymoon. There were a few scathing comments about Glenn calling him a fool for taking a woman on such an adventure. <laughs> okay. Okay, 1929. <laughs> uh, Jean Hyde wrote a letter to a newspaper in defense of her brother and sister-in-law in early 1929. A couple places feel a bit awkwardly worded, but I know people stated things differently at the time, so do not risk changing meaning by trying to edit for clarity. I am just printing it as it was written. So here's this um, a letter to the newspaper by Jean Hyde, so Glenn's sister. Editor of the Chronicle, Sir, I am writing on behalf of my brother, Glenn R. Hyde of Hanson, Idaho. As he is not here to answer your suggestion that he started on the Colorado River trip, I shall answer it for him. <clears throat> Such suggestion I read in one of your editorials, which came to my notice only today. Mr. and Mrs. Hyde were not a couple of foolhardy youngsters who decided on a trip down a river of which they knew comparatively nothing in search of a peaceful honeymoon. They had read all valuable material concerning the river before they started, including the account of Major Powell's trip. Hmm. They knew just what they were attempting. Neither did Mr. Hyde have the nerve or idiocy idiocy, to take his wife on a trip of that sort without sufficient experience and skill in that line. Mr. Hyde has had his first experience with rough water in the northwest of Canada on the Peace River when he was a boy of 19. He had grown up on boats, so to speak, when we lived on the coast of British Columbia as children. On the Peace River, he learned the handling of the scow in rough water. In 1926, he and I essayed down the Salmon River of Idaho, nearly approaching Colorado in its danger to boatmen and its isolation between canyon walls. He learned from Captain Gulky of Salmon City in handling of a scow of sweep oars, and from him also learned the construction of such a boat. Having been with him on that 360-mile trip, I know he is an expert riverman and is hard-boiled enough to take care of himself when reduced to roughing it with little food. Mrs. Hyde shares my brother's love of adventure and knowing his skill on boats in the past, was anxious to go on the trip. She did not go for notoriety and neither did he. There happen to be some people in the world who retain enough of the, that love of roughing it and living, if only for a short time, after the manner of our ancestors. Such are Mr. and Mrs. Hyde. They cared enough for that sort of adventure to be willing to take that chance. We know, too, that Mr. and Mrs. Hyde have been successful in their attempts, attempt to master rapids up to the point where their scow was found. They had already run the Soap Creek Rapids above Grand Canyon, never run before. All former parties had perished in these rapids and parts of others, all run by the Hides. What was the fate of the Hides, we do not know, but we do know they have run water, never run before. Huh. Hmm. Wow. I like how she put, um, there, hap there happen to be some people in the world who retain enough of that love of roughing it and living, if only for a short time after the manner of our ancestors. That, like, explains some people. Not sure. me. No. <laughs> Not even close to me. That's all right. But, yeah, there are people like that. Neither Jean nor Bessie's brother, Bill, seemed to believe that Bessie was an unwilling participant. While Jean would have had motive to defend her brother's character, she had commented even before the disappearance that while both halves of the couple were eager to have this adventure, 
Bessie had seemed even more, quote, clean on the river, sorry, keen on the river trip than Glenn was, end quote. When asked to describe Bessie later, Jean says, said, quote, she was plucky, end quote. Like spunky. Plucky. Plucky. Bill agreed with Jean's interpretation of Bessie, stating that his sister, given the time in history during which she lived, quote, probably should have been a man, end quote. Or just sort of before her time. Sure. A little bit, yeah. For a long time after the disappearance, for a long time after the 13 days of heavy newspaper coverage ended, and for a long time after Emery Kolb gave his opinion that the Hydes were dead, R.C. Hydes searched. He made multiple trips down to the canyon, writing to his daughter Jean and Bessie's mother constantly, assuring them both that he felt they were alive and attempting to hike out. Bessie's mother asked if perhaps they were captured by the Native Americans, and Jean told her that the local tribe did not go down into the canyon, and even if they did, they'd have pointed Glenn and Bessie towards, toward a town, not harmed them or taken them captive. You can tell which of the two families had met and spent time around Native American communities, and which family had likely only read stories. Yeah. yeah. Despite the Kolb's extensive searches having found no footprints, no stacks of rocks or carvings of notes and no bodies, R.C. refused to give up. Searchers ultimately found that the checks R.C. wrote them to pay for the search could not be cashed. And as R.C.'s family always maintained that he was a man of great integrity, he may have been so frantic he was writing checks for amounts he didn't realize that he didn't have, losing track after attempting to pay so many different people. By February of 1929, R.C. seems to have accepted that he would not find them alive, but he still returned, wanting to search for bodies. He also wrote another letter to Bessie's mother, letting her know that he was not going to give up trying to find their remains, and telling her that Bessie was, quote, a wonderful girl, end quote. A wonderful girl. That came out so funny. <laughs> a wonderful girl. There we go. By all accounts, the Hydes had loved having her in their family. In December of 1929, mere months into the Great Depression, Bessie's father, William, met R.C. Hyde out west to search the canyon together. Again, nothing was found. I think about how both of these men were mourning their children, but my heart hurts a little extra for R.C., since William Haley didn't really know Glenn, but R.C. and his family all knew and loved Bessie. That's also like... That's that's some rough shit going out there and trying to find somebody. Sure. In the wilderness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, who knows what the hell you're going to find. Mm-hmm. Or become part of the wilderness yourself. Exactly. Go missing yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. The first woman to successfully ride through the canyon... Oh, sorry. Women to successfully ride through the canyon were botanists Elzada Clover and Lois Jodder from Michigan. Ah, Michigan. Shout out to to Nicole. (laughs) Because Michigan. (laughs) Who did it in 1938 uh, and were told the entire trip that women didn't belong on the Colorado because, quote, just look at what happened to Jessie, Bessie Hyde, end quote. Sorry, her name is not Jessie. Bessie Hyde. As they neared the end of their journey, during which they met Emery Kolb, Clover reported that the two women, quote, felt their spirits sink. 
Bessie Hyde had come so very close to completing the journey. They sensed that they were about to receive all the fame and accolades designed to Bessie, and it depressed them. Hmm. End quote. Mm. Had the Hydes lived, they could have become the power couple of river running, like the Crafts to Volcanology or the Washburns to Mountaineering. I will trust Nicole on that. I don't know who those people are. <laughs> like the Hydes, the Washburns consisted of an experienced husband, in this case Bradford, Oh, author of the Sick Burn Letter in a previous script where he informed Joe Wilcox that Denali had not yet been climbed blindfolded or backwards. Oh my God, Do you remember really? that? Yes. <laughs> How I, funny. Yeah, what the hell? That, that is yeah. too funny. <laughs> Pops up all these episodes later. Yes. And Barbara, a wife who joined her husband in adventures after their marriage and wound up making a name for herself as well. And Clover and Jotter were right. Glenn and Bessie had indeed gotten very close. The Fangs are, are at Grand Canyon Mile 232, but the Hides had already traveled 600 miles on the Colorado River in just over five weeks. When they reached the Fangs, they were only 46 miles from the mouth of the Grand Canyon. Wow. Um, here is the Dimmix, retracing the Hides route also in a scow. Okay. All right. That's what a scow looks like from I the guess. inside, I guess. Yeah. Huh. Brad Dimmick's tone takes on greater emotion when his recreation trip with his own life nears mile 232. Yeah, I would imagine. It is hard to research the hides extensively, spend months or years with them, and not feel attached. It certainly happened to me. It happened to Clover and Jotter on their own trip, even though they weren't there to study the hides, and it happened to Dimmick too, to an even greater extent, which makes sense given the extent of his research. Dimmick says when they started their journey, they'd already learned the real story of the Hydes, that Glenn was not a brute, Bessie not a meek victim, and that Glenn was extremely experienced on the rivers, but they still couldn't work out exactly why they had failed. As Dimmick and his wife interpreted the, the intact nature of the rain in the face as proof that the boat hadn't been a problem. His wife said that says that when they started out on their journey, quote, I was in defense of the scow. I thought it was the lack of life jackets that did, him, did them in. Now I know it was the scow. Mm. It was the scow. End quote. The scow, which as mentioned in part one, was very sturdy, but could not be steered as effectively as other types of boats. Glenn and Bessie, or sorry, that, that was the end of the period. <laughs> that was the period, end of the sentence. That sounded like I was supposed to keep going. Glenn and Bessie would pull to shore, get out, and hike forward when it was time to assess major rapids, needing to prepare to steer well in advance to make sure they'd pass over the calmest parts. Mile 232 rapid, the Fangs, was not on any 1920s maps. Mm. They believed they had 10 miles to go before reaching a drop in the river, which they were prepared for. They would not have been able to scout up ahead due to the topography of the canyon and would have been running to the fangs blind. Wow. That's scary. Yeah. Dimmick says they would have noticed the fangs with mere seconds to react, possibly too close even for a more maneuverable boat, maneuverable boat <laughs> but far too late to, have, to do anything in a scow. Often at big rapids like these, they would duck and cover, lowering their centers of gravity into the boat, but this may not have helped here, especially if they'd had no time to react. 
Their turmoil, Dimmick theorizes, came suddenly. They would have been floating contentedly on the river until they weren't. As Dimmick approached 232 in his journey, he felt his heart grow heavy. Even today, 30-foot motorboats are torn apart on the fence. Wow. Glenn was right to trust the scow, at least in terms of sturdiness. Dimmick pulled off upstream from the fangs and hiked to observe them, thinking of how Glenn and Bessie would not have been able to do this because they didn't know they were there. He describes feeling angry and almost grief-stricken at being at the site of the hide's likely death. He said he was begging the river for an answer, even asking out loud. He shouted at the fangs, quote, Why did you, What did you do to them? How did you get them both? End quote. He explored the nearby land, wondering what to, what they would do if they'd lost contact with rain in the face at this point, but made it to shore. He fantasized about, quote, finding two skeletons huddled together, end quote, even mm. though he knew he would not. Mm. The Culps had searched this area. R.C. Hyde, William ha- Haley, Jean Hyde, and two... Uh, I, I'm, I apologize. I'm getting to, like, a... A weird reading fatigue? Sure. <laughs> that's on me. No, that's Sorry. Okay. R.C. Hyde, William Haley, Gene Hyde, and others had searched this area in 1928 and 1929. Nothing was ever found. No rock piles, no footprints, no words scrawled on the rocks, no clothing, no circling vultures, no bodies. The Hydes never made it out of the river. But Dimmick still looked. He notes that in rapids like these, it was very possible that both Glenn and Bessie were manning the sweep oars, and in this case, both would have been flung from the boat like Glenn had upriver when he was nearly knocked unconscious and scared Bessie half to death when she couldn't immediately pull him back to her. The water was treacherous here, treacherous to the boat at the fangs, but other jagged rocks under the surface meant that there was no reprieve for someone in the water. That's true. They could have hmm. gotten thrown up against other rocks. Right. Knocked unconscious. You know. With the heavy clothing they were wearing, it would have been nearly impossible to swim to stay above the surface long enough for the river to calm. Even if only one of them had fallen in, what we know of the hides suggests that either may have entered the water voluntarily to try to save the other. It is more likely that this attempt at heroics was taken on by Glenn. He was bigger, stronger, and Bessie was more likely to fall out of the boat due to her weight. However, given Bessie's intense fear of losing Glenn, she may very well have experienced a jolt of adrenaline, of desperation, and dove after him if Glenn had again been knocked unconscious from hitting the oar or a rock. I mean, yeah, it's it's pure speculation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you don't sad. know what someone's instincts would exactly. do in the, in the moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's sad that it has to come down to that, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, Demick's book does romanticize the idea of their deaths a bit here, with the idea that one had attempted to save the other. I prefer to believe that they both hit their heads on oars or on the rocks and were unconscious immediately. That yeah. that seems most likely, um, or at least possible. Surely possible. Regardless of the specifics, Mile 232 appears in guidebooks today as Honeymoon Rapids. As everyone who isn't Unsolved Mysteries agrees on one thing, it happened there. Mm. Upon continuing to observe the fang rocks, Dimmick said, says, quote, I was overcome with sadness, knowing that these two people in whose lives I had been immersed for so many months had died here. 
I had grown fond of them, too fond, and now it felt like I was watching them die. Yeah. As for the others in this story, Glenn's mother had died in 1911, well before ha- uh, any of this happened, and R.C. died in 1945, forever changed by the death of his son and daughter-in-law, and forever wondering if he could have done more to find them. Well, it sounds like he did an awful lot to try. Yes. <laughs> Boy. For sure. Of Glenn's two sisters to survive childhood, an older sister, Edna, lived until 1987, and Jean died in 1970. Bessie's father passed away in 1950, and her mother in 1962. I could find nothing on Bessie's brother, but as Dimmick says that her family no longer exists, I assume he did not marry or have any children. The families spoke of their lost loved ones less and less as time went on, as it was too painful to talk about. Today, Emory Kolb's studio is preserved as a historic structure within Grand Canyon National Park, not due to its association with the Hides, but due to his photographic accomplishments. Emory and his brother Ellsworth operated the studio together from 1904 to 1960 when Ellsworth died, and Emory continued until his own death in 1976. Wow, that's a long time. Yes, it is. Today it is an art gallery and bookstore, and if and you pass it to hike the Bright Angel Trail, which Glenn and Bessie took from the bot from the bottom of the canyon up to the studio in 1928, and then back down to the scow. Below is Kolb's studio today. Photo from the National Park Service. Wow. Oh no, kidding. That's amazing. That is yeah. Quite an outlook. I hope huh? that's on a Airbnb. It's a preserved historic no, structure. I know. <laughs> Glenn and Bessie's story has passed into legend in the Grand Canyon and American Outdoors communities, and they have been the subject of or featured in several books, most notably Dimmick's, but also in a chapter of a book about the first 100 people to run the Colorado River by Otis Doc Marston. Doc that Marston. Feels, okay, that feels like a double a double play. Well, Marston. Doc Marston. I, I hear Marston. I think John Marston from uh, Red Dead Redemption. Oh, okay. That was the main character in that. Doc Marston sounds like Doc Martin. A little bit. Me. Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and then Doc also Marston. Otis is his real name. Doc is his nickname. Otis Redding did Doc sitting on the dock of the bay. Uh, anyway. Anyway, he's an American historian and Colorado River runner. They have been discussed on both NPR and on PBS and on podcasts National Park After Dark, The Trail Went Cold, and Lost in the Woods, among many others. And now all bad things. Yes. Thanks, Jim Cole. Yes. American songwriter Mar- Marissa Nadler released a song in 2022 called Bessie, Did You Make It? Although the lyrics heavily imply that her only knowledge of the story comes from Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. Well... I don't necessarily blame her for this. As a longtime listener of country music, I know how much that type of story sells. It's just that in this case, about two people that I, like Dimmick, have come to care very much about, it's hard to hear people state things so confidently yet be so wrong. And as a historian trying to exist in such an age of misinformation, it's a little frustrating, though understandable, that Unsolved Mysteries and Ghost Stories has become the primary way people know about the hides. I largely feel blad- bad for Glenn. Blad for Glenn. Blad for Glenn. Yes, bad for Glenn. When nothing that is known of him prior to that point would indicate he was capable of hurting anyone. 
Mm. I think that Bessie would hate how her husband is usually remembered. At least neither ever knew how he was portrayed on Unsolved Mysteries. Glenn and Bessie... Yeah. That's very true. <laughs> right? Glenn and Bessie's relationship has been cheapened through time via rumor and television entertainment, implying that Glenn was abusive and that she was a meek, unwilling participant, and their deaths, while they should serve as a cautionary tale and important education, or at the very least just be a notable part of the history of white people in the Grand Canyon, their story instead has become muddled with rumors and sensationalism. I do not criticize Unsolved Mysteries because I feel Glenn and Bessie made no mistakes. I criticize Unsolved Mysteries because the mistakes that Glenn and Bessie did make can be both understood in the context of time and learned from. And those lessons and that history only loses value when twisted into something it's not. Final thoughts. I grew up believing that Glenn was a horrible man and that Bessie probably survived. I desperately wanted to believe that she did. In Dimmick's book, when he was introducing and debunking all the fake Glens and fake Bessies that popped up over the years, I would desperately look to poke holes in his arguments against the fake Bessies. As a kid, I admired her for her adventurous spirit and her love of the outdoors, as well as her passion for writing. I grew up to have a history crush on her, and my admiration for her only increased when I learned of how well she knew how to take care of herself and get what she wanted. I felt that we could have been friends if we existed in the same place, the same time and place, and partly because I could relate to her so much, I so very much wanted her to have lived. I wanted Unsolved Mysteries to be right. But the more I look into all sources and evaluated them for credibility, of course, giving the most weight to their own journals and letters, and to Occam's Razor, oh, that's the, um, the simplest solution is probably the most probably accurate the right or whatever. <laughs> the more I saw a very different picture. I now feel guilty that I hated Glenn for so many years, and in a complete 180 to my long-held opinion, I am now glad for Bessie that she found someone liked, like him. He and Bessie were not what Unsolved Mysteries wanted them to be. They were a good match for each other, loved and respected each other, and died together. As to why their bodies were never found, Dimmick's research has found that with the water levels that year, the temperature of the water, and how bodies react to those conditions, it is likely that Glenn and Bessie had not yet resurfaced at the time the water searches took place, and when they did, they'd have moved down the river beyond the search area. Mm. At some point during the winter when R.C. was still combing the wilderness near mile 232, convinced they were still alive and trying to walk out, their bodies would have reached the Pacific Ocean. Under the conditions of the time, it is estimated that four out of five bodies would not be recovered. Jeez. It is here I will share perhaps the most haunting poem in Bessie's volume, Wandering Leaves, which gave Dimmick's book its title. Quote, Oh, Mama dear, please come. My dolly must be drowned. When I put her in the creek, she sunk without a sound. Wee Betty's eyes filled with tears. Where could poor dolly be? Perhaps she turned into a mermaid and drifted out to sea. Mm. End quote. When I return to the Grand Canyon in a few years, I will be armed with the camera I did not own at the time of my childhood visit, which, truthfully, I don't remember fondly since it was very hot and, because we were rushed, we did not do very much. When I return, I plan to visit the Kolb studio, not just due to the connection to Glenn and Bessie, but because of Emery and Ellsworth's notable achievements as early photographers. I plan to hike the trail down to the canyon, perhaps taking a rafting trip with a guide. 
how far I'll go or what else I will do, I don't know, but I do know two things. Like Brad Dimmick did 25 years ago, my eyes will scan the cliffs and caves for two skeletons. And I know I will not find them, but I will still look. Quote, when I am very old, what I hope that I can say is life gave me all she could and filled every single day. End mm. quote, Bessie High. And that was the story of the deaths of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Yes, thank you Nicole. very much again, Nicole. That was amazing. Yes. Never heard one thing about it. I must have missed that Unsolved Mysteries. We should watch the the yes. clip. Now we'll we'll feel like experts. Go, oh, that's that's yeah. ridiculous. We know better. We covered this in episodes three. What are we on? Three twenty-five and three twenty-six. There you go. Yeah, and people will be like, well, what were those episodes about? We'll be like, well, we don't know. Like, they were... No, I'm kidding. Like, we, we, it's just that we've done so many episodes. Like oh, that's true. That's fair. Number, that's fair. Yeah. We would never be able to... <laughs> Possibly, like, 100 was AIDS and HIV. Mm-hmm. 200, was that the Leonard Skinner plane crash? Is I that think what it we was. Did that's, we, we did the live yeah. episode. We had, I don't even remember what 300 was. <laughs> Something. Oh, 50, the fifties was Chernobyl. Yes. 50. Yep. Fifty. That's about 53. it. Yep. Because that was a four-par. But yes, but again, excellent scripts. Quite a script. And that that's like it. It's like a mini book. Yes. Very well done. Yes. And I mean, just I'm. Yeah, I can. It's easy to see how somebody can take that well. Foul play was involved, like kind of, because you don't yeah. know, nobody will ever know. Yeah, so you can't confirm anything. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to, but Speculate. you're putting right, but you're putting people's reputations at stake too. Yeah, like a, and, he was a real person. Yeah, yeah, he, and without evidence, he didn't deserve to get slagged no. off like that. No, yeah, slagged off. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, and the and the kind of shit that they were doing a hundred years ago. I know we talked about that more in the last episode, but still, it's just like, this is dangerous shit. Yes, yes, especially back then. It's yeah. still dangerous now. Yeah. Yeah. So, the odds of them, uh, it's just sad. It is, is sad. It is. it is sad. It's very sad. So, on that note, mm-hmm. that was the deaths of Glenn and Bessie Hyde, episode two, or part two. Mm-hmm. And this has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We will see you next week.